0: about C.S. Lewis. Have you heard of him, Brian? Uh, No, never. Uh,
1: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, we are talking about Lewis tonight, and part of the reason for that is that one thing you may not be aware of is that for whatever reason, there is this burgeoning interest in Lewis and his friend Tolkien in the age group that y'all are a part of, more so than has ever been the case even when Lewis was alive. And it's just, it's Become kind of a phenomenon of people in 20s and their 30s really being interested in Lewis and his works, um, discovering them for the first time. Um, many of you might know there was a major movie that was released last week um, that's called The Most Reluctant Convert that's about Lewis's journey to faith. And when that movie um, was shown last week, it was actually the highest grossing night of any movie uh, in the country. Uh, which was kind of amazing, Um, and that movie is still here, but as we were talking about this, we thought it might be just interesting to talk a little bit about, why is it uh, that Lewis and his friend Tolkien are so resonant for people right now in this culture, particularly people who are in y'all's age range? And uh, just as a little background to that, uh, Lewis lived a long time ago. He was born in 1898, It was a long time ago, Uh, In Belfast, Northern Ireland, Uh, he was a genius. Uh, He renounced his Christian faith as a child and became what I would call an evangelical atheist. He was brilliant. He graduated with a triple first from Oxford, uh, which is like graduating summa cum laude with uh, three different degrees. Um, And he did that in four and a half years. uh, in greats, which is philosophy and classics, and English literature, um, totally amazing. Uh, he was drawn into the Christian faith largely through his friendship with J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who of course read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then Lewis became uh, one of the leading academics in England, but also became really known for his Christian faith. In this country, we know him much more as a Christian, less as probably one of the major geniuses of the 20th century. Uh, but he is someone whose works have had a huge impact. There's actually a book uh, that is about famous people who have come to faith in Jesus because of reading Lewis's mere Christianity. Um, It's just kind of an amazing thing. So I could go on and on about that, but uh, we just want to encourage you, if you don't know anything about Lewis, um, this would be a great time to learn something uh, maybe go see that movie or we'll maybe have some recommendations about some things you might want to check out reading-wise. I brought some books. Did you bring some books? I did not, but I figured you would. I got I got a few Lewis books. I figured you might. Um,
0: well, would the folks who are going to come up for the panel, would you mind coming up here? And I'm just going to pose the questions now to to you guys. And we've got a mic here. So all right, Colton, Joe. Lad. Hey y'all. Y'all all went to see this movie, right? Yes. I didn't get a chance to see it. So in some ways, I'm hoping you convince me why I should see it tonight. Um, but I think first, tell me what it is about Lewis or Tolkien, by the way. I mean, these two guys, they were really the inspiration of why we're doing what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. The whole Inklings, they met in a pub, they had great conversations, people were drawn to it. It was really fun. And that was kind of the inspiration behind what we're doing here. What is it about these two people that are intriguing to you? And whoever wants to go first, I'll give you the mic. Yeah. Yeah, I was
2: surprised Um, when we went to the theater. I expected it to be not very full. You know, it's C.S. Lewis, and we live in a pretty atheistic society. Uh, But when we got there, the theater was almost completely full. And I know there were two showings, and they were both pretty full. So. Uh, I saw something from Pew Research uh, a couple weeks ago and it said that one out of every three adults in this country is spiritualistic but not religious. I think that there is a strong spiritual hunger inherently in all of us um, and people look to satisfy that in different ways. in Colombia a couple weeks ago, I was driving down the road, and I saw a fortune teller. And the parking lot was full. Um, I know tons of people who believe in astrology. So there's clearly that desire, but people just don't know how to fulfill that desire. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is just people looking for meaning in life. And they see someone like Lewis who's fulfilled, and it draws them in.
0: Yeah. How about you guys? How would you answer that question? What, what draws you to people like Lewis or Tolkien? Yes, yeah, so I think
3: going off of uh, what Joe had to say, um, <coughs> when you start to learn about their life journeys, which you get to see glimpses of their life in the movie, or glimpses of Lewis's life in the movie, uh, you start to realize that they were relatively... Relatable—they're—they're they're very relatable people that you may have had similar experiences to them. And I think, uh, as Joe said, sort of this longing for um, something uh, deeper than what we can find in this world. And, you know, there's a, a spiritual desire within us, and I think Lewis said that. Um, one of his quotes is uh, that you know there's—he kind of realized in himself that there was nothing in this world that was going to satisfy him. Um, I'm paraphrasing there. But I, I think we can kind of all relate to that. And as you, you learn about these these men and their stories, and you start to dive into their works where they, they really explore these ideas,
4: um, it can maybe help you find your own way. Yeah, I'm just going to add on that and say um, what was most interesting to me about the whole Lewis phenomenon was, and what got me interested in him initially was that, um, like Brian said, he was a Christian growing up and then decided to renounce his faith. And so at that point it becomes interesting, like okay, he, he claimed to have known the Christian faith and then he went away from it for you know, 20, 30 years and then he comes back to it. So then the question becomes why? Why is he going back to it? <coughs> And I think that's the thing that's most intriguing to me. Um, and I think it's what intriguing other people as well. They want to hear, you know, why, why what drew him back to the Christian faith?
0: I'm, I've never actually asked you this. What, what, how did you get started
1: loving C.S. Lewis? Uh, I got started in the most traditional way, which was as a small child, having the Chronicles of Nernia read to me by my parents. And I was utterly captivated. And it's just been downhill ever since. <laughs> and the more that I've learned, and then I was very fortunate. One of my mentors in college married into a family in England that knew Lewis well. And so I've had the opportunity to meet all of these people that knew Lewis and be in places that normally no one would be able to go um, and just really come kind of into an inner understanding of that that's made it that much more just marvelous like walking through the wardrobe. <laughs> That's
0: awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about the movie. Obviously, don't spoil it, because hopefully, I don't know. Raise your hand if you have seen it already. Hopefully not that many. OK, a few. Yeah, perfect. Well, for those of us who haven't, don't spoil it. But give us some of the, the high points, things that may have surprised you. Why, try to convince us why we should go see, go see it. OK.
4: Yeah, so I, I think just going again off what I was saying before, um, A lot of the movie plays off of his auto, you could call it his autobiography, basically, called Surprised by Joy, um, where it kind of talks about from childhood to adulthood. um, It goes through his life and, um, you know, talks about, again, his coming away from the faith and going back to it. Um, And I think it does a really good job kind of summarizing that and summarizing the points and arguments that he uses in his books. So, if this is a you know area where you haven't read a lot of his books before, I think it's a good starting point um, to kind of get into Lewis and begin to realize, um, learn a little bit about him, um, and then um, yeah, just get to learn a little bit more about him and why, what kind of led him back to the Christian faith. Um, I I just think it's a good starting point.
2: Yeah, basically everything that Lad just said. Um, it's also just a good movie, you know. It's uh, I would say it's a little it's a little wider on the apologetics when you go into it. You're gonna see a lot about C.S. Lewis's life, how he became a Christian. So yeah, it's it's really. Good. Yeah, I
0: wouldn't I mean, add anything to what the two things. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well. um... Let me just do this. Uh, favorite book of C.S. Lewis of yours? I'm just, I keep putting you on the spot. I'm sorry. You're right. right next yeah. to <laughs> Um,
2: I would probably say Mere Christianity. Um, if you're not familiar with Lewis, I would say Mere Christianity is his most rationality-based book uh, where he really just defends the faith against critics. Um, Surprise by Joy is, is also a good one to, to read as well if you just want a better picture of C.S. Lewis's life. So. And then, of course, the Narnia books. Uh, lots of good theology in there, but also just good stories.
3: So I don't know that I have a favorite book. I have not really read any of his work um, until recently started diving into it. And I think just a slightly different perspective, because I know Ladd and Joe are, are very uh, familiar with his works. We're a lot more familiar than I am, at least. Um, I think when you, again, start to learn about his story, and you start to dive into some of the works that we're doing with um, Father McGready and The Abolition of Man, and uh, really start to understand like, uh, he he explains in a more rational way, I guess, than other people might the case for Christianity and for, you know, that, that God really does exist, and if you're somebody who, you know, maybe you have an engineering or a science background and uh, you're not into reading something like the Chronicles of Narnia, I think that some of his other works might be very appealing to you if you're a very rational thinker.
4: Um so my favorite book is actually, I think, a good median uh, between all of those. So I, like Brian, kind of grew up um, reading the Narni books and had a great love for those, um, and then kind of jumped into a, a little bit more of his philosophical works, like Surprised by Joy and Mere Christianity and those. Um, but my favorite book, personally, is Till We Have Faces, um, which I think is a good culmination of all these ideas, um, the mythos and the philosophy, and I think it, he really does a good job combining all of those into a story that um, is exciting to follow and you also get to learn a lot about him um, and his life as
1: well, so. You wanna answer it? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so it, it depends on what day it is, which of my many Lewis books that I like is my favorite. Um, currently I would say it's That Hideous Strength, uh, which I'm getting ready to teach on Uh, That Hideous Strength is the last of what's called Lewis's Space Trilogy. One of the things that's amazing about him is he wrote philosophy, he wrote children's stories, he wrote science fiction. I mean, it's just incredible, and all of it's really good. But That Hideous Strength is right up there with 1984 and Brave New World as one of the most famous dystopian novels, Uh, and I think it is brilliantly done. And it is actually, it'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up to read it right now because so much of what he wrote about in 1943 is actually happening now. So um, I think that one's really good.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that that can't really be said enough how much he is so gifted in terms of writing academic, philosophical literature and at the same time being a really good storyteller. this article that you sent me, Brian, actually talked about the uh, the top top list uh, by Generation Z the the books that they enjoy. And Harry Potter's number one, no big surprise there. But number four is Lord of the Rings, uh, and then number six is Chronicles of Narnia, which I was pretty shocked. I didn't think Chronicles of Narnia would be in the top ten at all, but uh, that is surprising. So, and I'm, I've really enjoyed reading. I've started Chronicles of Narnia with my children at night, we're reading The Last Battle right now, and it's, it's really one of these things that Lewis and Tolkien, they both were absolutely fascinated with the idea of fairy tales. They thought adults should enjoy fairy tales, that this wasn't something that you just grow past in your life. And um, that's something, the older I get, rereading them, it's amazing how it penetrates the whole person, I feel like. Um, so it's really hard to, to nail down just one, but... Yeah. The Last Battle right now would have to be my favorite because that's what I'm reading.
1: So, If last... you haven't read The Chronicles of Narnia, please do yourself a favor and do that. One of the things that's great about them, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if it seems, sometimes like there's a lot of despair and darkness in the world, uh, but when you read The Chronicles of Narnia, they are just full of beauty and hope. And I think that's something that for most people is in short supply and being able to lean into that is an amazing thing. And the movies really don't do, by and large, justice no, movies, at all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings movies, yes. Hobbit movies, no. Um, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, not too bad. But the other Narnia movies don't even bother Wait,
0: did you give a no to the Hobbit movie? The You're first kidding?
1: Hobbit movie, I will give an okay to. The subsequent Hobbit movies, Wow. Yeah. Okay,
0: I'm learning something every every time I gather with y'all. Yeah, That's amazing. Don't get me started. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like a long
1: conversation. It is. We'll, we'll, uh, it's so, awesome, but long. Let
0: me finish this time and ask y'all one one question. How has either Lewis? You have or, to
1: ask them one more question too. Yeah. If they have a favorite quote.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Favorite quote, if you have one, do you have one? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Give me your favorite quote, and then how has your life been impacted? By somebody either like Lewis or Tolkien.
2: So, I wanted to, uh, my, my favorite quote would have taken like five minutes to read, but, It's the you know, whole book. Uh, <laughs> I love this because this just speaks to Lewis's character. This is from The Way to Glory. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortals and their life is to ours as the life of a net, But it is immortals when we joke with, work with, marry, snow, and exploit. Immortal whores or everlasting splinters. How has he had an impact on my life? Um, I would say the reason I'm a Christian today is because of C.S. Lewis. Um, I remember in high school, I grew up in a Christian family, but I didn't really care about Christianity at all. And one day, uh, God just kind of appeared in my heart and just kind of, I was interested. So I went to the bookshelf in my parents' room and I found an anthology by C.S. Lewis, which is basically like his greatest hits. It just has like all the best things he said from every book and on different subjects, you know, heaven, hell, relationships, things like that. And I just couldn't stop reading. It was just incredible. And he answered all my questions and ever since then, you know, I've been a Christian, so, wow.
3: So I also wrote down a quote, and the reason that I chose this one is mm-hmm. they, they bring it up in the movie, but it's also one that I, uh, Father McGreevy touches on quite often, and I actually think, well, this past spring, you, you kind of gave a sermon somewhat related to it, gave a sermon on it somewhat related to
1: that it. That could have um, happened.
3: Yeah, the, the specific sermon was about um, just the the story of Christ and, and that we should, you know, it, it, when you actually realize that these events really did all take place, and you look back in the Old Testament and you know, that they were predicted in the Old Testament. If somebody were to come to you now, if you'd said Joan of Arc was, I think that's the example you Wow, came, you remember was, that? Um, telling us that we were all sitting in a church at St. Philip's, It was, I wanna say, it was leading up to Easter, or right after Easter that we did this sermon. Um, we would all kind of be in disbelief that she had written about this or spoke those, you know, those words, prophesized that, I guess. Um, but Lewis said, "Now the story of the story of Christ is simply—I can't read my own handwriting. Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. And I think for my for myself, kind of beginning to explore Lewis's work um, as." sort of helped me grow in my faith, um, but also really um, reignited my desire to want to learn and read more. Um, I'd done a lot of reading in boarding school, I got to college, decided to study engineering, uh, really didn't get to do a lot of reading or, uh, you know, dive into things more philosophical, and this has, like, really ignited a, a, uh, A new interest in in my life uh, at a time when I really needed it because I've been super busy with work and other things. So I think that's kind of the impact that he's had on me. It's very present right now.
0: It's great. Cool. Thanks, Colton. Matt?
4: I also wrote down a quote. Um, Colton actually uh, touched on part of my favorite quote, which is actually from Mere Christianity, so I'm going to read that part, which is, um, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Um, but the actual quote that I wanted to read is actually from Till We Have Faces. It's, it's very much related to that quotation, but he says, um, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach, reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you not think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but like going back. Um, and, you, you know, you see this theme weaved out throughout Lewis's life of his search for joy, and nothing in this world that could satisfy that. Um, and again, just as he reiterates, is that um, his conclusion is that there must be something else that he was made for in this life. So the impact that Lewis has made on my life, um, I think the biggest impact has been on my thought life, um, both in the sense of just thinking more about that afterlife, but um, also in in, in the spiritual sense, I think both his space trilogy is a really good trilogy to start. Um, It just makes you very much aware of your thought life um, and the things that you think throughout the day and I think like Colton touched on again is, I mean, this is something that really reignited my passion for reading as well. This isn't something that, they're they're not these big ideas that are not approachable to the general population. I mean, these are books that anyone can pick up and understand what Lewis is getting from. Um, And so yeah, I just think that's the, the biggest impact he's had on me is just being more aware of kind of what goes on in my head throughout the day and being able to, yeah, think about that, so.
0: Well, thank you guys. Um, I'll let y'all go back to your seats. I really appreciate you being here. And I thank do you. Yeah. And going off of what Lab just said, I think for me, somebody like Lewis, you know, he, truth, goodness, and beauty, he kind of t- taps into all of those. And Mere Christianity was a book I remember reading when I was younger that... Um, I'm going to turn this off if it's not. There we go. Uh, I remember reading it when I was younger, and like, okay, this is a smart person, obviously, went to Oxford, got, like, several different degrees, he's clearly smart, and he, like, prided himself, and, like, Christians are stupid, you know, they believe in God, that's dumb, and he actually made a case for why it would be intellectually consistent and honest to be a Christian without being stupid, and I was like, that, in and of itself, okay, I'm open to that now, I think, but the you know, when Ladd talked about the Space Trilogy, that was, I can't stand science fiction. I don't like science fiction at all. But that is surprisingly one of my favorite uh, groups of books of Lewis is, is his Space Trilogy. The, the, we've talked about this. Harold the second one, he has such a gift for articulating the, the way and capturing your imagination, but also your affections, mm-hmm. to feel the way things ought to be and, and hopefully will one day be I've never read anybody quite that good at doing. I mean, he's talked about how heaven, all the wrongs in this world will be undone, and goes on and on and on about what that looks like and what that feels like. And it just was like this is not just captivating my, you know, intellect, but my feelings and my emotions, and drawing that out, making. And the same thing's true with with his fiction. I mean, Narnia certainly. Um, The Last Battle, that's one of them too, but where would you suggest people, if they've never picked up C.S. Lewis, uh, there's probably a number of ways you could answer this, but
1: where would you tell them to start? Um, There are a couple of different options depending on how you're wired. Um, If you want to, if you really just love story, um, I would pick up one of the Chronicles of Narnia. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a great place to start. Um, The Silver Chair is another one that's a great place to start. They are fantastic. Um, Another place that's great to start, um, that's really easy, especially if you feel like you have a short attention span or limited time, is the screw tape letters. Um, Screw tape letters are literally letters, they're like a page and a half, some of them not very long. Um, Really easy to read, profound, just unbelievably profound. If you've got um, more of a sort of uh, reasoning, logical kind of mind, Mere Christianity is also great. One of the things I love about Mere Christianity as a starting point is that the chapters are really short. Um, The reason for that is that it was originally given as broadcast talks, and this sort of segues into one of the reasons I really appreciate Lewis. He was an unbelievably authentic person He really tried to live out his faith. Um, Mere Christianity came about because in World War II, for a while, England was losing and the Nazis were bombing England every night. Hundreds of thousands of people were homeless. They thought that they were going to be invaded by the Nazis. The BBC, the broadcasting group, came to Lewis and said, our nation is losing hope. We need you to talk about Jesus. And he's like, I'm an Oxford professor. What are you talking about? And they're like, no, 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 we need you to do this. And so Lewis would take the train from Oxford into London during the Blitz to go to the BBC headquarters, which is one of the top targets of the Luftwaffe, where people were regularly being killed at the BBC headquarters. And he would like walk through the fires and over the sandbags up to the broadcast studio to give the talks that later were published as mere Christianity. That takes unbelievable courage. And it just shows, again, how deeply he believed believe in the truth and the hope of the gospel. So I think any of those are, are good starting places. Okay. Um, how are we doing
0: on questions? I know it's past 8 o'clock. We normally try to finish up. If you haven't had a chance to submit one, I would encourage you to grab this. It doesn't have to be about CS Lewis. It could be about anything. We got, we have a few, or I've, I could keep going. I've got a few things I'd want to share. Do you need a second? Um, yeah, maybe just a minute or two. Okay. So one of, the, one of the quotes that I wanted to share that really impacted me, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't have it written down. I don't even know where it came from in Lewis's writings, but I remember when my grandfather, my the, the first death that I can remember, and somewhere you probably know this because you have an encyclopedic knowledge of Lewis, but he was talking about how um, the act of remembering and memory actually culminates... And consummates the actual event itself. And so when we remember the joy that was there, it's actually, until you remember it, it's incomplete. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking at my grandparents' funeral about, that just jumped off the page at me. Because it was, this is really incredible. Like, yeah, there's something to the idea of, I I really loved him. I really enjoyed being around my grandfather and I'm going to miss him. But there, there's something really true about the idea of thinking back and the, the way that memory completes the experience mm-hmm. itself mm-hmm. Uh, was was actually really right and, and good. Um,
1: I don't know if you happen to know where that um, was that from. idea is actually in several different places. One of the things about Lewis is a lot of his ideas will show up in multiple places uh, so like what what Ladd was reading for his quotation is almost. Identical to a fictional passage in the last battle, um, which is also well. Anyway, so a lot of these play out, but that is in a grief observed, and uh, but it's also in several other places. Well,
0: and we didn't go into his life at all, but it was marked with suffering in many ways. Uh, Joy, who was um, his spouse, interesting story there. Won't go into it, but he's so honest with the pain of life. It's somebody who's not going to sugarcoat answers. And to match that with his intellect, uh, philo- philosophy, and that sort of thing, it just, it, there's a reason why he's famous.
1: Yes. Um, well, and one of the things I love about Lewis, this is a story that um, seems to be pretty well attested, is that um, you know Lewis was one of the most famous people in England in the 20th century, and in America. He was on the cover of Time magazine in the 1940s, even. and um, But he was deeply humble. His uh, personal assistant called him the most thoroughly converted man he had ever met. But one of my favorite stories about him is he used to go to this butcher shop on the way home from Oxford, and he's going back to his house, and he would talk with the butcher, and sometimes if he went at closing time, he and the butcher would go out for a beer together. And uh, then when Lewis died, somebody told the butcher that Mr. Lewis had died and said the butcher wanted to find out about the funeral, um, because he just really had enjoyed the time that he spent with Lewis. He had no idea who Lewis was. He had no idea that he was famous. Lewis had never talked about any of that. He just thought he was this guy that came into his shop and he was kind of doing him a favor by going to his funeral. And I just love that. I think that, yeah, that speaks a lot about his character. That's great. How, about, how are we doing? Yep, yeah, I'm awesome, ready. Um,
2: so
0: Would
1: you like a microphone?
0: Yes, I, I yes. No, but we actually need <laughs> it for the uh, recording. Mean, because we don't remember to actually. Where's the. Okay. <laughs> How
2: should Christians engage the postmodern skeptic, i.e., everyone has their own truth?
0: Can you say that again?
1: Yes. Yeah. How should
2: Christians engage the postmodern skeptic? i.e. everyone has their own
1: truth? That is a terrific question. So uh, one of the things that I think is really important in engaging people who are skeptics is to first work on building relationship with the person. Uh, I think that that is important and beginning to establish some kind of trust level. Uh, And then as people begin to go into that idea of Speak your truth, everybody has their own truth. Um, You can begin um, to explore whether that is really something that they're committed to or if that's just a smokescreen. Sometimes it's a smokescreen against wanting to believe or or deal with certain issues, but I do think that uh, one of the best ways that I've found to engage with people like that is to read something together. Um, Lewis can be a great thing to read together. Also, one of my favorite things to read um, about that is uh, Bertrand Russell. I don't know if you're familiar with Bertrand Russell. Very famous atheistic philosopher, um, 20th century in England. Wrote a very famous uh, short book called Why I Am Not a Christian. That is one of my favorite books to read with people um, because it's terrible. His arguments are just terrible. And so it's really easy... Um, if you're reading and discussing that book with someone to make them they, it makes them begin to question a little bit so i think the the goal is you want to love the person and you want to try to get them to question some of their fundamental assumptions that are um in you know in the view of christians um off base to, yeah, yeah I, well
0: I, having not seen the movie but knowing a little bit of lewis's life the way he was converted i mean the title was the most reluctant convert it wasn't in an instant. It's, it's not in a singular conversation that most people have this aha moment. Uh, it's usually through a relationship over time with people who actually uh, love them and get to know them and in, in increase plausibility for an alternative belief system. Mm-hmm. And I think in the context of that relationship, one of the things that you can do is you start to actually maybe probe underneath and, and start to doubt even the doubts. And to, to realize that this idea of everyone has their truth isn't actually an intellectually honest or consistent thing. There's going to be certain things that we all hold to be true. And if I tried to claim, well, this is my truth, and I'm going to impose it, I'm going to do something that violates your truth, you're going to say, no, 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 we have to agree on certain shared values and principles. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a consistent... Um, Belief to hold, but I think it's in that context of relationship <clears throat> that you can begin. <coughs> excuse me to have that sort of conversation.
1: Yes, and the first couple of chapters of Mere Christianity are also a great thing to read together because that's exactly what Lewis unpacks in that section. Yeah,
0: I just completely forgot to go under a minute. Sorry. There we go. Keep going. We're gonna go.
1: Fa- we're gonna go faster. Okay. okay. Rapid fire.
2: All right. What convinced, maybe for those who aren't aware, um, what convinced Lewis to convert
1: from atheism to Christianity? That's another great question. So Lewis um, had a list of things a mile long about why he was an atheist, but there were several things that bothered him. He was intellectually convinced he should be an atheist, except he discovered that all that he didn't like people who were atheists. Um, the people that he was attracted to were people who were Christians. And that really bothered him that Christians should be like joyful and people he wanted to be with. And then he started reading um, a lot of classics and discovered that a lot of these classic people who were really the intellectual giants of the ancient world were Christians. And that really bothered him. But what really did it was Tolkien. Tolkien couldn't believe, it was funny, Lewis thought, I'm so smart, I know you you shouldn't be a Christian. How could any smart person be a Christian? Tolkien, on the other hand, thought, I'm so smart. I'm a Christian. How could any thinking person not be a Christian? And so then they kind of collided with each other. And Tolkien just like really invested in Lewis's life and challenged him and talked to him and loved him um, really into the Christian faith. He answered it. (laughs)
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, um, next question.
2: Were there any sin struggles that Lewis wrestled with through the entirety of his life that he acknowledged slash wrote
1: about? Yes, so Lewis had a number of sin problems um, that he wrote about. He, he's quite honest about this it's in several different places, but he struggled with sexual sin. Um, originally, while he was an atheist, he believed in free love. And then he got involved in this really weird relationship um, where his, one of his best friends, uh, when he was 19, uh, when they were in World War I together, the best friend uh, was killed on the battlefront, and Lewis was supposed to take care of his mother. And his mother, sort of, a lot of people think, seduced Lewis after that. Um, and so there was this like, kind of creepy. Relationship um, that nobody really knows exactly what happened, but it was a very unusual relationship. But after Lewis's conversion, he like cut that off. But most of what he writes about is his pride. Then he says he was a really obnoxious intellectual prig and he could not stand people that he thought were his intellectual inferiors and he had to deeply repent of that.
0: He's going to know all these answers better than I am. Don't sell <laughs> <laughs> yourself short. No, no, that's <laughs> um, Is it hearsay to envision Aslan as Jesus or vice versa?
2: I know it's an allegory, but I feel like Aslan has become a Christian symbol. Is that wrong?
1: Um, I would say no, it's not wrong. So, Aslan, of course, is the great lion in the Chronicles of Narnia um, who sacrifices his life to save Edmund, who has betrayed everyone to the White Witch. Um, So Aslan is clearly a Christ figure, and Lewis said he's not um, exactly an allegory, but he says it's more of what he would call a supposal, that suppose there were a world like Narnia, how would God intervene in that world? And so Aslan is the answer to that. But Lewis actually wrote a letter to um, somebody in Bethesda, Maryland, about this in the 1950s, um, where the person was worried that they liked Aslan, too much. And Lewis said, no, no, don't worry, because Aslan is written as a a symbol for Jesus. And that um, my hope in writing that was that people who maybe had been dulled to the wonder of Jesus's love and power would see that in Aslan and be drawn to it. And so that is a good thing
2: kind of
0: going off of that, what are some
1: other Christian things in the line to which in the wardrobe that comes to your mind off of that? Oh, man. Do All you, right. Do
0: yeah. you want to uh, uh, jump so, in on that? Yeah, I can jump in on that, finally. Um, the idea of... I, I think the character of Edmund is, is somebody that really stands out to me, where he is tempted, uh, offered... Just, it was a Turkish delight, I think is what mm. it is, uh, in order to... Basically, betray his brothers and sisters, and the idea that the this witch uh, more or less seduces him with what he wants in this Turkish delight, and and it just pales with what he actually wanted, and it she over promises and under delivers, and that is such a great, I think, illustration that it encapsulates. Uh, the idea of sin and, and evil that it always promises so much but it, it
1: leaves you feeling way worse after you indulge in it yeah. Yeah. yeah there are so many things that is, especially if you know anybody that struggles with addiction um, the way that Lewis portrays Edmund and Turkish Delight in there um, if you have a friend or anyone that you love that struggles with addiction it just nails it Um, But they're also, there's a beautiful, just constant illustration through that book of the, um, the whole idea of costly forgiveness and redemption. There's also a beautiful example of what real fellowship is, that each of the four children in that story are given gifts by Aslan, literally given gifts, like a physical thing, and without each one of them using their gift, they would never have been able to defeat the enemy and they don't get along, they're not perfect, but they manage to work together and use their gifts in order for something beautiful and wonderful to happen. Um, There also is a great theme in there about beauty and where beauty really is, and that Satan's desire sort of portrayed through the white witch um, is to keep us where it's always winter and never Christmas, that there's that longing that can just never be fulfilled, where Aslan wants to give you your heart's desire. I could go on for hours about that, so I'm just well, going to stop. The, the thing
0: about that you were talking about, um, the idea of Aslan giving the gifts, yes, I think one of the things that Lewis does so well is portrays an adventurous Christian life. The, the, mm-hmm. Living as a Christian is not some like second-rate, uh, Boring, straight-jacket yes. way to live but an exhilarating adventure that you're invited into and that you're needed in, actually. And I think that is one of the things people just roll their eyes at, the idea of church. But he gives vistas of what the church and what living as a Christian could be that
1: are really powerful. Yeah, and I would say one of his most famous quotations is, joy is the serious business of heaven. And you will hear from people over and over again that Lewis was the most joyful person that they had ever met in their life. And his writing is full of that kind of joy um, that we're so desperately in need of in our world and in our individual lives today. And I think Lewis can help you get in touch with that. These are very good questions, by the way.
2: What do you think C.S. Lewis would say about today's culture and political polarization?
1: Uh, he wrote about it in uh, That Hideous Strength. He predicted exactly where we would, uh, so many things that we see right now. Uh, one of the uh, story, s- chapters in That Hideous Strength, he talks about how um, this group called the NICE, you've got to love that name, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, um, how the nice wants to get everybody and the culture at each other's throats. And the way to do that is to get the media into a far right and a far left media war where nobody knows what the truth is anymore. And so the, the people are just shouting across each other and there's no ability to have any real dialogue anymore. When did he write that? 1943. It'll. Uh, uh, I wish I had the actual text to read you it will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It's crazy. But he, he predicted that we would end up a lot of where we are now, and I think part of what he would say is that um, one of the things about living in a polarized culture is it means Christians are called, and Jesus said this, and Paul wrote it, uh, we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation, that it's, we hold truth, And love and we hold those together um, because we live in a culture where a lot of times there's truth but no love or love but no truth and Christians have the unique ability to hold both of those at the same time and hold them out to a culture that's broken.
2: What is your
1: take on Lewis's view of heaven in the great divorce? That's my question. That's a great question. Um, Lewis, again, in The Great Divorce, he says he's not trying to write theology about heaven, um, but that he is doing a supposal um, of what what it might be like. Um, I will say that when I was in Oxford one time, um, leading a pilgrimage over there, we went to a church, and they happened to the guy that was speaking was a um, an Anglican priest who has a couple of doctorates in very well-known theologian, and he was talking about Revelation 21, which is the new heaven and the new earth and all of that, and quoting some different theologians. And then right at the, like getting to the climax of the sermon, he said, but the best understanding and description of heaven, if you really want to take everything that the scriptures say and then see it sort of fleshed out, is in Lewis's The Great Divorce and the Last Battle. If you take those two together they will help you understand what the scriptures are teaching about heaven. And so I would say that I agree with that. Um, I don't think you can like take literally every little bit of The Great Divorce, but I think the, the import of it together um, is very much right. And for those of you that don't know The Great Divorce, it doesn't have anything to do with divorce. Um, it's about, the, the title comes from a William Blake poem about the divorce of heaven and hell, and in the, in the book, there's this idea that these people that are living on hell can take a bus tour where they go up to heaven and see whether they like it or not. And um, it, it's just absolutely fascinating, but it talks so much about the sins that hold us back, um, where we can't, we can't let ourselves accept joy because we want to hold on to other things in our lives. We can talk more.
2: Okay, now I'm
1: turning it over to Colton who wants to ask some
3: funny off-topic ones. Yes. They're not
2: completely off-topic. Do you want this? Yes, you should get the mic. Were the dinosaur fossils out on Earth to test our humans? Wow. (laughs) (laughs)
1: okay um, so there's a whole lot of stuff implicit in that question, question. Of that would take a really long time to unpack um, but one thing I do want to say is that there is if you went to a school which probably most of you did very often when you are taught science you are taught that there is a black and white choice between the Christian view and the atheist view. The atheist view is what all semi or more than semi-intelligent people believe. The Christian view is only for dumb people. And the Christian view is that um, God made everything in seven 24-hour days um, about a thousand years ago. And um, the other view is the view that everything happened purely by chance and it's complete atheistic evolution. And the problem with that dichotomy is that it's a false dichotomy. The Bible does not teach that first position. Um, God might have made the world in seven 24-hour days, but the word day in the Old Testament can equally mean age or epoch. Um, There are many ways that you can see parts of evolution that can be very much aligned with the creation narratives so that whole thing about dinosaurs disprove that God made the world, um, that's, a, that's a false dichotomy. Yeah, there's at least six
0: major ways Christians have understood Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, some of them do hold, some Christians do believe that there is a young earth, which means that the dinosaur, they would have some funky view about dinosaurs. I, I don't hold that. Uh, some people would have a... Um, that would still appreciate the text I think of Genesis one taken a little more uh, figuratively, uh, and then others would see that they're just not it's not even talking about evolution at all or it, it's it's not it's actually not the point. Uh, science not the point at all right, that's right. yeah so there's yeah. there's literally like five or six different ways Christians
1: have understood that um, but if anybody's hung up about Genesis one and feels like that's a barrier to faith. Please talk to Justin and me because that that's something we can help you work through.
3: Yeah. We're Lewis and Johnny Bash (laughs) friends.
0: It's a historical fact, Colton, actually, yes. They've been best friends, Tolkien
1: yeah. (laughs) They would have been probably if they'd ever met. Tolkien or Lewis, one has to go. (laughs) That's a false dichotomy. Um, Somebody asked this sort of before in a less dramatic way, and um, if I had, they asked if I had to be on a desert island with only one's books, and I said Lewis, which I would still hold to, much as I love Tolkien, and it breaks my heart to say that almost, but the reason is that if I were alone on a desert island, I would want somebody that was much more overtly theological, Tolkien is full of beauty and wonder and Christian symbolism, but he's less direct about it. I would say, i Lewis as well. Just because he has more, I think. Than yeah, he wrote a lot more because Tolkien was very slow. The only reason The Lord of the Rings ever got even published was because Lewis nagged him endlessly um, to get him to finish the books.
3: And since this is our last Theology on Capitaine eight thirty two, so this is the last question, um We've kind of touched on this. I feel like in each of our sessions, if one was to feel spiritually fulfilled, comma happy, why would you suggest they become a devout Christian apart from going to heaven and believing hell?
0: I'm gonna need that repeated. I yeah, say I, that uh, again. I need if visualize. one
3: was to feel spiritually fulfilled. just going to leave it there. If, if one was to feel spiritually
1: fit, fulfilled, why would you suggest they become a devout Christian or from going to heaven and hell? Uh, well, I think that if, if you want to experience joy, which I would take spiritual fulfillment to mean joy, um, the, my belief and the belief of the Christian faith is that God made you, that God designed you that he gifted you in a certain way and that he made you for a purpose. And that when you live into that purpose, there is joy and meaning that you experience in a way that you absolutely cannot in any other way. And so to me, it it isn't so much about like fire insurance that you like avoid hell and get to go to come It's more like living in line with what you were made for. And uh, I think that aspect of it is hugely important. Yeah. I asked this question the last sermon, I think
0: I did, was if, if heaven wasn't where God was, would you want to go there? Right. Yep. And the idea of hell being a place, and Lewis talked about it, hell's a place that's locked from the inside. I think you miss the point of the whole Christian faith. You miss the whole point of existence if you're just doing the quote unquote fire insurance. you're, yes, there's real, I think, warnings about hell, but the predominant message of Scripture is that you were made for a relationship with God, and that you and I, we look for those things in all these various places to fill this longing in our heart. And until we actually find the rest and the purpose and the love and the joy that we were made for in the person of the Triune God, we're it's a f- futile effort, first of all. Um, And hell will be this place that is just furthering on what we've always done apart from Him. Um, So I would say, in order to be satisfied, that's what I would encourage you to do. I don't think there's such a thing as being satisfied apart from Him.
1: Yeah. There's a great Lewis (laughs) quote that says God cannot give you um, happiness and joy apart from Himself because there is no such thing. And, you know, it's the idea that lasting joy can only come when you're in relationship. Well, guys, thank you so much. We've gone a little bit over tonight.
0: Um, If you have not on our email list, please go ahead and sign up. That's going to be really important because this is our last Theology on Tap uh, officially for the fall. We'll do one in December, December 14th. We'll be back here. We'll probably have like a dress-up party. Not exactly sure what kind of maybe uh, tacky Christmas sweater. I haven't done one of those in a long time, but um, we'll do something fun. We'll email that information Mm -hmm. out to you. Love to have you join. Also throwing the idea around, possibly of maybe like bowling or axe throwing or something like that over the holidays. I just had a baby last week, so I need a break for a little bit. <laughs> um, I, my wife had a baby. I didn't have a baby. So clear about Thank that. you for that clear. I know you're all wondering about that. Um, but so please do join our email list. Again, this has been so much fun. We're really and one other to one other little
1: video. plug. Uh, if you have never. Raise your hand if you've ever been to Choral Evensong. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, if you have Choral Evensong is one of the great, beautiful things that's part of the Anglican world. Um, we don't get it very often in this country. It's a sung service that's about forty-five minutes to an hour long. The St. Philip's music program with Chris Walczeski. Um, is doing Coral song at St. Philip's this Sunday at 5 o'clock. If you want to do a little dive into beauty and wonder, um, I would just commend that to you. Also, the C.S. Lewis movie is playing for one more week at Palmetto Grand. Uh, I think it's at 3 o'clock most every day, um, including during the weekend. Uh, I would really encourage you to go see that movie. It's well worth it. Okay, I will. (laughs) I'll buy your ticket, Justin. Will you? Yeah. I'll take you up on that. Fantastic. Well, thank you all. This has
0: been a blast. We're going to hang out for a little while. Feel free to grab another drink and uh, tip well, because we're really grateful for the folks at Henry's. So, yes. Thank you. Thanks for coming.